Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week I am joined by Tom Midgley. Tom is a registered behavioural and cognitive psychotherapist and a highly specialised eating disorders dietitian. Tom is the director of Body Image Treatment Clinic in London, where he works with clients to treat a number of conditions relating to body image distress, such as trauma and eating disorders, two conditions we will discuss today and how they can be treated. Hello, Tom. Hi, Hannah. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Busy in busy in the world of eating disorders and body image at the moment. I have to, oh. I have to tell you, but yeah. It's yeah. Good. No, well, I feel very lucky then that I've got you for an hour to be able to chat about all that you're doing. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. I really wanted to start by, I guess, just giving like a bit of an overview of what the body image clinic is and what you guys do there. Okay, yeah. Um I set the body image clinic up because I've been working in eating disorders and trauma for well over 15 years. And I've worked both child, adolescents, adults, and spent over, I think, 13 years working in inpatient units. And and within that context, the theme that came up time and time again was clients, wherever they were on their journey, had limited quality support around their body image, be it they've been through traumas, and potentially done trauma work, but actually their relationship with their bodies and how that might impact them interpersonally or with intimacy, et cetera, uh, had just not been dealt with. And the same with eating disorders, that common theme of individuals were helped to get to a healthy weight, uh, may have done additional work that helped them deal with more of their kind of confidence and how they saw themselves outside of their eating disorder and move forward. But again, work around body image seems to be something that either was ignored or a lot of clinicians, because it's quite tricky, a lot of clinicians tend to kind of appear to dodge it is what I'm guessing, but it was just a theme running through time and time again. So as I was doing more and more of that work and doing elements of it, it just seemed a natural progression to specialize a bit more in that particular field. Yeah, I think you're really right. I think it's something that we've spoken about quite a lot on the podcast in terms of, I guess, this the standard treatment is, well, I'm speaking about anorexia here, but like you, you provide a client a meal plan, and then they follow the meal plan. And it's that sort of progression. But there never really seems to be that sort of you've gone from one body type to another. And I always think that like, that initial um kind of weight change or you know getting back to a healthy weight is like it's not even recovery it's kind of like the first bit you need to do and then after that is when recovery starts and you start doing all the therapy so then to be left there with no like this is your new body now this is how you need to cope it just seems mad yeah no I'm uh, I tend to talk with people about that when uh, and the same thing as like well when you get back to a healthy weight you're back to being the person that basically thought you know eating disorder was their best option so <laughs> that's really in many respects when a lot of the work can in some respects can really start so yeah I'm totally with you on board with that so I guess if we think about your work it's not all just eating disorders so if we were going to think about body image concerns or distress how would that present differently for somebody with an eating disorder and without an eating disorder okay it's probably useful to kind of describe the kind of the tend to be the kind of people that come to the clinic. So the, the, I guess the largest presentation does tend to be eating disorders mm-hmm. uh, across the spectrum. So from uh, the more known ones like anorexia and bulimia to the kind of more uh, kind of binge eating and uh, uh, other eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, the other group that we tend to uh, tend to work with, we do get some body dysmorphic disorder. And then the other group tends to be more trauma related or individuals who tend to be overwhelmed by uh, their body issues with with their body image. Uh, And if I was thinking about how we'd approach those, with all of them, you'd do a kind of a detailed assessment, trying to understand 
both what's led to these particular issues and what's maintaining them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were then going to you know, think about how we might treat that, if you're going down, let's say, an eating disorders route, I can kind of broaden it because, say, with any, because actually some clients present with all of those elements. It's not uncommon that you might have someone who's got uh, linked both definite separate developed BDD initially and then shifted into an eating disorder. Uh, they have crossover features and then, uh, and there's typically underlying traumas related to their body image that may have uh, created these elements. One thing to kind of understand, uh, I think, with any therapy, the evidence base lies within, uh, uh, you know, the best prognosis is where you get early change. Mm. So it's about working out with someone what they're motivated to change and trying to get an early change in one particular area. So if you think about, as you probably well know, with something like anorexia or binge eating or believe it, there's more evidence, the most evidence if you get early change around the eating. And then once you've got a progress rolling there, you can then start looking more at, you know, some of the underlying components. Uh, the caveat to that is where sometimes with things like BDD or some of the trauma work, actually, if there's some really clear traumas that someone has been through relating to their body image, uh, which then more often is uh, with elements like that, then actually doing some work around those traumas uh, can be a particular benefit. Uh, so let's say a common one uh, would be growing up, in, let's say being bullied around something to do with somebody's appearance growing up. So, uh, uh, so that's you know a really common one that may be a presentation. So that initial focus will be around that trauma. Uh, and that's where we will tend to start. But I say we'll start there. An element that we might do, depending on uh, the person, is actually develop some uh, work prior to that, because there are different ways of tackling trauma. Uh, You've got mainly a lot of the exposure-based work, which is where you're just getting someone to go through those traumas and process those traumas. Uh, But actually, I think what can be really helpful with some of our clients is to do some initial work on uh, there'll be around things like compassion focused work or schema based work. And the reason for that is when you relive a trauma, a lot of the times you're reliving that trauma with the perspectives of the person that experienced that trauma mm-hmm. and their insights. So, and what you'll get a lot of the time when you try and then relive that trauma is someone who then says, well, yes, but I deserved that, what they believed about it at the time. And I, you know, and that's because I'm a bad, disgusting person. And, uh, and it's all my fault is, you know, elements such as that then may come through. And if, if that's their perspective, you know, it's very difficult to then process that trauma. So we do a lot of work about helping people focus on actually being able to build and develop a more wise compassionate version of themselves uh, and then be able to use that to be able to reduce the level of threat when they're doing trauma work because they're able to then bring in something that's much more soothing and bring that soothing capacity to reduce the sense of threat uh, and then within that then have that more wise value-based perspective uh, and that's uh, uh, can be a real integral part in any of the work around eating disorders. Do you think that that, as well as being able to, I guess, work through that trauma, does that sort of compassion-based approach, I mean, I guess I'm making quite a a blanket statement here, but I'd imagine that a lot of people with an eating disorder lack compassion for themselves anyway. So it, it sounds like it ties quite nicely together in terms of like the trauma, as well as that compassion in terms of the eating disorder, working through that as well. It sounds like you're kind of getting at everything. Definitely. But there's the big paradox in this, in that the people that need the compassion work the most are the ones that are going to find it most difficult to do. Mm -hmm. So if you take a classic presentation of, let's say, anorexia, if there is such a thing, what you're going to find is that they will have a very, usually a very potent inner critic that they would have developed through parts of their childhood. uh, And they would have developed then to manage that sense of criticism they would event also a very potent uh, what we kind of call it over control or a way of quietening that inner critic by setting goals planning analyzing and achieving and as long as they keep their mind filled with plans analysis achieving and goals then they can quieten down that uh, inner critic 
And the last, and then the idea of bringing in something compassionate is usually absolutely terrifying because there's a fear that it will let them off the hook. If they stop that control, then all they're left with is that powerful inner critic and it brings a lot of fear and distress. So, uh, but actually what, what you're trying to do with developing a, a more compassionate part of the mind is, is not to get rid of that over-controlling part, which is what most people fear, uh, you're actually trying to calm it down by removing or reducing the, the, the inner critic. Uh, and if you can replace that inner critic with a more objective, compassionate, kind uh, way of appraising themselves, it doesn't let them off the cook, hook. Because the point of compassion is it's not, you know, it's not soft and woolly. In fact, it can be very, uh, can be quite the opposite. Uh, it's about being yeah, it's about being kind to ourselves, but it's about foremost being empathetic, which is usually taking the hard path uh, to feel and connect with what's going on. And, and, and then through that, look at uh, making the best decisions. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that's helpful in terms no, of... No, absolutely. I, I really liked what you were just saying about... Because um, I think so many people kind of when going through recovery, it's almost that like... I, I can't let I can't kind of let go of control because if I let go a little bit everything's just going to fall apart and you know everything I'm going to just be completely out of control and do everything um but I've always been such a firm believer actually you know I've got this characteristic where I like things to be a certain way or whatever but rather than using it as like a negative towards myself I can actually benefit myself but being able to like you said take that inner critic and then actually use it in a productive manner some of the characteristics that kind of predispose someone to an eating disorder can be quite good in everyday life it's just about finding the way to slot them in that's going to help you 100% I mean I tend to describe that as thinking about somebody with uh, an eating disorder and that over controlling aspect that, that is there across the board with them but it's most prominent let's say in anorexia it's you know it's a superpower Mm. And a lot of people feel that it is, and it is. But it, the way we describe it, it's only a superpower if you can turn it on and off. Mm. Otherwise, it's not a superpower. It's like being invisible is only great if you can turn it on. If, it, <laughs> if you can't turn it off, then it's not a superpower. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a curse. And that's what you're trying to learn to do by developing that ability from fashion. It's, the, it's to turn that ability, that controlling, that, uh, that capacity into... Uh, into something that uh, then does become superpower because it can, uh, yeah, you can use it, turn it on and off, but certainly not to get rid of that. The bit that we're trying to help reduce is that inner critic because a lot of people in, in therapy or that understand concepts around the kind of the anorexic voice and that's still used across the board with eating disorders. But when you really break it down, it's not a singular thing. It is, there are two sides to it, that critical punitive attacking part and then that uh, kind of controlling, uh, planning, analyzing part. And you can either conceptualize it as two sides to the same person, but when you really break it down, they usually appear at different times. The critical part, uh, when we, we actually kind of, when you assess somebody and look at where it comes from, we're not born with it. It tends to come from people's experiences of seeing people criticize other people, let's say growing up in a household where there's fat shaming uh, or, and then the next step is almost is, or people criticizing themselves. So you can imagine, let's say, it will be kind of stereotypical mum looking in the mirror and never being happy with herself or dad always being on a diet and not happy with his body or something like that. And, or at worst, somebody experiencing criticism towards themselves. And those experiences then kind of mirror and create that critical part in their minds. And it's when that feels overwhelming and difficult, usually they build that uh, kind of over controlling aspect it doesn't always work in that way if someone grows up in a highly perfectionist driven household environment where winning is everything then they'll tend to grow up you know you'll develop that you know, probably that over controller and part at the same time but you'll, you'll be aware of the repercussions if you don't achieve so that critical part will still develop uh, at the same time mm. I mean how do you I guess if somebody's listening and thinking, yes, this is completely me, how do you work through that? Because I, 
from what you're saying, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, well, if somebody's grown up in an environment that's very critical or very controlling or whatever, you're probably still going to be in that environment. And even if you've grown up and left home, you might still go back to that environment. So how would you work with somebody to sort of be okay going back into that environment and not fall back in old habits, into old habits? What you've described is a very difficult thing. To <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you might be aware. Um, I mean, how you help someone with this in its entirety is, is I mean, as I said, there are different ways of approaching this, but let's imagine that you've got someone and you've made progress, let's say, around their, the eating side of uh, that work and you're making progress there. What, one of the early things you'll also look to do is create a detailed individual formulation. So you're helping someone get a real sense of, you know, the combination of genetics and early experiences that creates that person's personality, their vulnerabilities and their strengths. And, and then have that shared understanding why they've become, where they're susceptible to, if we're going to say we're on the theme of eating disorders, susceptible to eating disorders and what it gives them and what it takes away. So you, you first create that sense. And part of that work, and part of the work is then helping them realize that actually this isn't something they had a choice with. You know, we are, you know, this is created from our early experiences and we just think that's us and we think we have free will but you know we don't really uh a very limited free will so the first thing is to pull that apart and understand those elements and then it's to understand to look at that and go right this is what we've been given okay and then but what do you want for you going forward mm. and this is particularly helpful with a lot of people that you know you talk to which is about where they get hooked into things like i don't deserve you know, I don't deserve to get better or uh, I deserve terrible things because I'm a bad or disgusting or a useless person within that context. Um, and to, you know, is to kind of look at, well, this is how you perceive yourself historically. Right? And there may be reasons that you believe that, but we want to kind of think about, well, how do you want to be in the future? You know, what do you want that version of you to look like? And that then becomes the focus of our work is then, right, this is what you've been given. These are the tools you've been given to, especially a lot of work around emotional regulation. These are the tools you've been given to regulate your emotions and that in most cases have hampered your development in terms of your self-confidence and self-esteem because of the tools you were given uh, and the things that you weren't given. So some of the work is in looking around within that formulation work and um, is to look at what... Uh, what are the you know what are the important elements you've been given in life that help have helped you thrive and drive strength? But what are the things that have hamstrung you, uh, and to really understand those, and then be able to give choices about developing those, mm. uh, and then moving in that direction, because and then that that that's that kind of a longer term, bigger picture work that then helps people. Uh, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, you can get someone back to a healthy weight. The normal chat there is, is that, right, I'm now back to a healthy weight and I'm still as miserable as I was <laughs> when it's all first started. And yeah. it's like, well, how do you change that? Uh, mm. And uh, yeah, so that, yeah, that's how, uh, hopefully I've explained a little bit about how that, how you tackle that within therapy. I think, um, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've kind of, from listening to you, made a bit of a revelation. Oh. Um, you know how, like, you know, often people say for, for an eating disorder, it's not about the food. It's about kind of what's underlying and the food is almost a way to communicate that. It's almost that kind of it sounds similar with the body image work as well in that it's it's not maybe the actual like body image stuff that's causing the issue. But it's it's those characteristics like the inner critic and the over control and or the trauma and everything that is kind of like projected onto your body and you're almost using that as like it's a it's a small piece of the puzzle to be critical or to be controlled about and actually you need to kind of go under the surface definitely my mind is just fired off in many many directions and I'm not sure which direction to go and <laughs> uh, try and make notice of I'm going to start with one bit which you talked about the the food element which is I always find a funny one which is it's not about the food mm -hmm. uh, and it's right it, in the same way, treating alcoholism is not about the alcohol. Yeah. But unless you deal with the, <laughs> unless you deal with the alcoholism, you won't get into the yeah. stuff that's underneath because the person is, you know, they are, you know, they're either 
not connecting with it because they're all they're focused and driven or they're numbing and cut off from it. So uh, we need to tackle the symptoms so that we can get to the underlying issues and effectively treat it in both those elements. So, and you're right with the body image. So uh, an interesting thing, if what you kind of, I tell you where the different directions of mind go. One's thinking about issues within our culture that causes body image issues. But if we keep it more focused on, uh, you know, body image generally and, and links where that goes with eating disorders is to think about when doing the assessment, you're kind of looking at some of the common features or understanding what leads to somebody to be vulnerable to an eating disorder. Now, body image plays a role. It's not, it probably isn't, uh, it's one of the, it can be one of the main features, but as I said before, one of probably, there are two sides to dealing with these things. There's one, which is the tools that someone has to deal with their their traumas, we all have traumas. Some are uh, kind of really considered culturally more extreme than others, but we all have traumas. And we all, most people think they have the, that they, we all got the same tools for dealing with them, but we very much do not. Uh, and the tools we have to deal with our distress uh, then lead to the element where we either become over, uh, you know, some people can go through incredibly, you know, clearly awful traumas but actually they're relatively robust because they've got really good tools and other people can go through considering mild traumas and then are overwhelmed by that mm. um and this is where we were i was kind of linking back to with some of these other elements so that's one half of it you know how what happens when we go through adversity and how do we manage and regulate those emotions one of the keys to it is what people do so uh, if i was to talk about you know, I do, I've done a lot of work in complex trauma and trauma outside of eating disorders as well as within it. And one of the common features uh, that we come across, you know, we often deal with a lot of uh, sexual abuse, especially, uh, uh, especially in childhood, which is synonymous with some of the binge eating disorders. There's you know, quite a lot of link there, uh, as well as some of the other elements. And one of the common features in all that time, I've never actually worked with someone who has said, yes, I went through this trauma or this, this was happening to me. And, um, and I went and told my parents and then they supported me emotionally. And then we worked through that and we, then they confronted it and blah, blah, blah within that. And I've worked with a lot. You know, the story I hear nine times out of 10 was I went through this here and then I felt so much shame. And I thought if I told people that they wouldn't believe me or that I didn't want to bring shame on my family or because it was a family member or someone known to the family, which is most common, that I didn't want to cause that disruption. So pretty much you know, nearly in all cases, it's or I did tell them and I wasn't believed or, you know, I was shamed or it wasn't taken seriously or I was hidden away. Uh, so, and that gives a bit of a sense of when we talk about tools is the, you know, what, how is, you know, what is the, when I talk about my difficulties or how does my family deal with feelings? Um, and so that's one half of it. lead <laughs> 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 up to the bit of talking about body image. <laughs> the other half of it is kind of the traumas that we go through. And when thinking about body image, what's commonly comes up with kind of within the assessment is, you know, the events that, really brought focus on someone's appearance now most common you know it's probably more common that it's post puberty because you have that combination of massive increase in kind of our sex hormones that massively increases our, our focus on our, our need to be wanted uh, desired and aspirational um, and that then combined with other elements kind of can bring an increased focus on one thing appearance if you then combine that with uh, events that amplify that appearance focus uh, then that uh, that then tends to spiral so the most common thing i tend to come with you know with an assessment you know you tend to find if i work with females that is a, a predominant amount of females i work with who, who will say that uh, they were uh, tend to be the, the tallest in the class or near the tallest uh, at a particularly young age that draw a focus on their appearance uh, or there was something different about them so other common ones if I stay with females is uh, girls that uh, basically uh, sexually develop earlier so they end up being focused on their let's say bust from other girls or boys and they get that unwanted attention so you've got this, if you imagine somebody's self-esteem, if you will, is kind of like a pie chart. Uh, and prior to that, 
you know, you know, there were chunks of their self-esteem was, I don't know, playing with their toys and doing sport at the weekend and playing with their friends at school and such and such. Events like that suddenly then start dominating the amount of their self-esteem or self-worth that's focused on what they look like and their appearance. And it draws, you know, that increased focus uh, within that. And then if they then start doing behaviours and they think more about it, that let's say if we go with the tall person, they want to end up being smaller or thin or be less obvious. So then start doing behaviours that fit in with that. So more of their thoughts and feelings and their behaviours are linked with their bodies and more and more of their self-esteem will be taken up by that. And there are, you know, there are lots of different things that could fall into that category. And one of the ones that's probably least obvious or thought about in our culture is you end up people that get, um, get identified as the beautiful ones tends to be also a particularly strong one. So those that get identified as the least attractive, all the ones as most attractive, end up having a lot of the problems. Mm. Because if somebody's always told, oh, you're beautiful or you're pretty or you're the pretty one, and they get positive uh, reinforcement from teachers, friends, and family members, aunties and uncles, then you've still got that, that problem with that cycle uh, of that starting. So you've got then more of their self-worth created by that uh, and then as they grow older and they want to increase that sense of confidence that's the direction they'll go and uh, so it will be more about how do I make my appearance uh, improve that so if they then align their body image ideal to the muscular ideal let's say we go within that then they'll be pumping iron and maybe even looking at steroids uh, if they go with the more classic thin ideal then it's going to be about losing typically losing weight and going down whatever in both in beauty ideals so it's then going to be about more and more in, in relation to that to try and generate some self-esteem and self-worth yeah I guess as well like you know if if somebody says you're the whatever one this is a beautiful one blah 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 I guess you would then feel like oh well now I need to either maintain this beauty or whatever or I guess it's almost like you know kind of that level of compliment would then become the baseline so how do I get to the next level like you were saying you know somebody maybe that wants to be muscular starts thinking about taking steroids and going to the gym all the time because you get to a point where you know that isn't enough of like a compliment or whatever and it is now your identity so that's you so you need to be even better at it so I can imagine that is so difficult to navigate and wouldn't allow you to then have other things to focus on um I guess it's like you know at school for example I was always labeled as the clever one or the well-behaved one so I then had to you know I put my own goals in to be like the cleverest or you know the most well-behaved because that was my identity and like if I was poorly behaved one day well you know that's completely out of like out of the norm for me so it was even more obvious I guess if you're like the middle ground and like you know you're a middle height nobody's ever going to comment on your height because that's just you're in the middle so it's not something about you but being the tallest or being the smallest is something people comment on and it becomes you and that's it and then I said and then part of the work as I'm going to talk about when you kind of think about your values is this is the identity you've been given uh, and then it's about standing back and going well this is what I've been given is this what I, what do I want going forward so a lot with the body image let's say so you work with some people and it might be as much as 90% of what makes them feel good or bad about them each day relates to what they look like what they've eaten how much they weigh or their appearance and when you tend to ask them you know, you know in, in the, how much do you want of your self-worth and self-intermediate of appearance and most people would then be taking that down to 25 or 10 percent and that's then the work is then about the problem with that though is that when it takes over and that happens within an eating disorder and it dominates that person's self-worth is let's say it's at 90 percent when you try and take it away and help someone recover they're going to feel 90% bad because that's their self-worth gone. So, and then, so I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but they're going to feel 90% terrible. I'll go with that <laughs> every day. And yeah. then that's what they're going through when they're trying to help them, you know, gain weight. And there's only 10% left that makes them feel good about themselves from other domains. So what you've got to do, you can't, you've also then got to build up that, it's not just about getting rid you know, because you've then left a vacuum unless you build up 
the those others and help them start to generate a sense of purpose and sense of self and value and belonging from the other areas of their life and their self-worth and competition and other elements, you leave a vacuum. So this goes back to your point, what happens when you just get someone to a top weight and leave them, is you've just left a massive self-worth vacuum. And because of their, the way their state of mind and the positionality has minimized and marginalized those other areas, all they're going to, you know, 90% of the time, all they're going to do is just refill the vacuum in what they know, which is going back to their eating disorder. Yeah. You've got to then build that, those other elements. And not just build it, they've got to help them feel that sense of worth and value and confidence from those other domains uh, that they then choose. So that's what we're kind of talking about. And then obviously compassion-focused work is part of that when it comes to uh, kind of attachments and connection with others and that side of things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is often something that people that like don't necessarily think about is that void that's kind of going to mm. be gone when because I always like feel weird saying this, but there's clearly a reason why people, you know, if we're speaking about eating disorder specifically, there's a reason why people persist with it. You know, there's there are some positives to it, whether you want to call them positives or not. There's a reason why those behaviors are engaged in. So I always think it's so important to think about what is it providing you but you're not getting elsewhere and how can you kind of build that into your life so that you actually feel comfortable moving away from the eating disorder because I mean this is something else that I wanted to kind of come on to talk about with you but is kind of finding something that provides you you know enough of of, of what you're getting from the eating disorder so you are able to go on and recover and engage in life and not you know, then develop new behaviours that, you know, might seem to the rest of the world as healthy, healthy coping mechanisms, whatever, but just become more obsessions. So do you have any, like, what would you do with if a client, with a client when they're starting to kind of go down that journey of trying to find something else, but not slip into negative behaviours, especially, I guess, with that, like, over-controller nature? When you think about it, in our culture, when we talk about emotions, we, unfortunately, the English language is really, really unhelpful. It's unhelpful because we use the term feelings to describe thoughts as well as feelings, as well as emotions, uh, which is particularly unhelpful. When we, and we kind of also simplify by thinking of the feelings as kind of happy and unhappy. So if we kind of, if we think of distress and, and understand that we have developed, you know, we've evolved distressing emotions to kind of, uh, let us know uh, to kind of disincentivize us for doing things that, you know, that can kill us. And people talk about that as being out of control. Uh, and then we uh, have our, kind of what we might talk about, our happy or positive emotions. And, they, and when they're engaged, we tend to feel more in control. And you can separate those positive emotions into kind of two separate categories. One, more classic self-esteem, which tends to be around uh, achievement focused so setting goals achieving planning analyzing and doing so uh, kind of, and that's one one half of that and that's most people understand that the, the more sinister side of that is a lot of it involves competing and comparing whether we like it or not competing comparing to others or competing comparing ourselves but it's always ourselves within our culture which really means it's always about others more often than not um so it's that a lot of that competing and comparing aspect and the problem with that and unrelenting standards as anybody with perfectionism and probably with eating disorders knows is that um, if you just bounce between that threat and that uh, unrelenting standards is uh, when you're moving towards your goals you feel like you're achieving when you reach them uh, you then end up back at the beginning and feeling uh, that huge amount of threat so you have to then set the standard even higher and with anything about setting standards higher, getting 40% in an exam is, you know, might take X amount of work, you know, but you know, the last 10% is much harder to get than the first. So we'll initially create huge self-esteem, we'll end up crushing self-esteem. So that's one part of it in terms of self-esteem, which is about that kind of goal setting. The other half of about feeling confidence comes from um, our sense of belonging, our sense of uh, connection to others. Now, uh, if you're lucky enough to grow up in an environment where that sense of connection is unconditional, then you're going to have an, a robust sense of confidence that comes from knowing whatever you do, wherever you've been, your team are behind your back, because that's what you've always felt throughout childhood. 
and that's unquestioned. So when someone has that, that sense of belonging and that sense of connection, they have that balance. They have uh, because of that kind of that value affirmation. So they feel good because they know that they're valued no matter what. And they feel good because they then set goals and they can grow as a person. Uh, and, it, and their goals and growth is not coming from a place of fear. They're not trying to set goals because they think they're rubbish and they need to be good. Uh, so when those are in balance, then uh, that's, that's where we have like balanced mental health. A lot of the people who work with an eating disorders don't have that sense of connection and belonging or whatever, you know, growing up for different reasons, that sense was uh, shrunk or it didn't effectively grow. And without that, then someone has a limited ability to soothe because uh, we tend to create a sense of soothing from uh, when allowing our connection with others uh, and our experience of that. And if that's there, we, we have a capacity to self-soothe. If that didn't happen, then we don't have that ability to self-soothe as effectively. So what we're then left vulnerable to is other methods uh, to self-soothe. Because otherwise, if we think about the emotional systems of drive and achieve, it fires up the central nervous system. So we're busy, 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 do, busy, busy, do. And when we're threatened, we're firing up the central nervous system. So if we bounce between the two, we just burn out because we've got no way of shutting down. So when we don't develop an effective soothing system, our only way out is to develop strategies around numbing, cutting off, and uh, if there's a punishment, shame element, self-harming. So what people will then do, because they can't soothe because that system hasn't been effectively developed, they might use something like substances or alcohol. So busy, 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 caffeine, caffeine, busy, 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 end of the day, drink, 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 sleep, get up, busy, 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 or they might use food. So it might be uh, busy, 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 end of the day. Uh, and if they if it becomes a habit, then they can miss the threat because they can stay busy or they'll get back in straight in the fridge, uh, straight into the behavior, behavior, behavior. Uh, and then if the bulimic then purge, 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 plan, plan what they're not going to eat the next day and all the exercise, what are they going to do? And then back round. So they can do it. They can kind of always stay within that and not have to feel so much because of those those strategies that fall within that. So part of what you're helping people to develop is that internalized capacity to find healthier ways of calming and soothing and stepping back that don't rely on uh, numbing, dissociation. And depression fits in that as a, another evolutionary system we've used to, when we, to switch off when we bounce in between threat and drive. Um, so you're helping people develop that side of things and that's where again work like compassion focused therapy and schema focused therapy is particularly helpful uh working with people with eating disorders or body image related issues and trauma so really the kind of i guess point is is that you know if you are engaging in those behaviors to numb or to kind of not feel the the threat or whatever it's going to be uncomfortable I guess there's no easy way around you can't just suddenly replace it because that is kind of prolonging the problem so I guess it's I guess that's why it's so important to go through therapy and do this because it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be difficult but you need someone by your side to kind of navigate which direction to take yeah I mean, yeah no I do agree with you in that sense of having that individual formulation understand being able to step back and understand why our mind's doing what it's doing uh, and why we're in the cycles we're in is a bit you know is a very helpful piece of work to do with a clinician because otherwise as you said you can fall in that trap of just nothing really changing you can swap out one drive achievement related behavior for another uh, and then or you could swap out drinking for some other numbing cutting off avoidant behavior uh, and nothing fundamentally changes you're just switching a load of behaviors and uh, you're just you know, and you know you know maybe some you might argue some are better than others but at the end of the day the person isn't generally going to you know they're still going to feel uh, yeah they not a lot's really changed or not feeling you're not helping them make uh, significant changes mm. do you see quite a lot of people that kind of swap potentially you know an eating disorder behavior out for something like exercise that could you know be seen as something positive but when it's in that kind of replacement it's not actually that positive 
yeah, I mean, there's quite a, there's a bit of a trend for that at the moment, uh, for sure. I mean, these things go through cycles uh, and we're definitely moving as a culture from the kind of heroin chic of the 90s into kind of more where we were back in the 80s with kind of, uh, you know, muscular athletic as the kind of new uh, kind of ideal or you know, there's more of that coming back into our culture. And with it, uh, there's a there's a shift within that. I think mean, there's, there's a few bits of research out there on this. I mean, all the stuff I've read is saying something pretty similar, which is swapping out restriction for sport or depending on what or, or fitness uh, basically has no benefit to the individual. Uh, it means they're just swapping one in for the other and that psychologically they're still, it's the same condition, they just swap one in and out. What's protective or what's been shown protective, and this is looking at something much, is, is team sport with body image. Mm. Um, so there's a difference there. So when people grow up and they're doing team sport, then that and they then learn a different relationship with their bodies or they can do compared to fitness or individual sports where they're much more synonymous with uh, vulnerability to eating disorders and body image issues. So, uh, so there is something about, let's say, uh, somebody playing football and they're growing up, but they'll they'll learn to see their body as a as a an athletic tool. That is, but it's also connected with a team and they're part of something bigger than themselves as an individual. And this goes back to what I was talking about that sense of belonging and connection, which is imperative uh, if you're going to help someone develop uh, long term healthy mental health. So there are lots of different elements within team sport that are potentially highly protective. Whereas individual sport, arguably, uh, if anything, it potentially increases risk factors. That's really interesting. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I guess, that sense of community, like, you know, if you're playing a team sport and also, you know, whether if you, if you have a bad day, it's you as a team that's having a bad day. So, you know, you, but you all come together, you support each other. And then I feel like it would be a much more healthy response, whereas like an individual sport it brings in that inner critic you know you were the only person that could have possibly done well so equally you're the only person that's done badly and I can imagine that would you know really drive those critical thoughts and then kind of okay so we did badly so now we need to put into place to be even better next time and then that over controller so it sounds like it aligns pretty pretty well it does yeah no for sure yeah I just kind of wanted to ask about I mean we've spoken about I guess the like criticism and the over controller and anorexia but when you're thinking about different eating disorders to maybe bulimia or binge eating disorder how how does the body image concerns kind of present in those sorts of clients um yeah I mean it's it, it, it's a really tricky one um Thinking about it, sorry, I'll try and, I, I'm not sure, I'll answer the question in two different ways, so I'm not exactly sure which, uh, well, maybe both be quite useful. Yeah. So I was talking about earlier about, let's say, anorexia, you've got that, our inner critic and that kind of controlling, over-controller aspect. And if you imagine, let's say, in someone with anorexia, the, the predominant aspect is that kind of over-controller, so they've really honed and developed that to manage that uh, inner critic. And the result of that is that most of the time they're highly controlled, and then there are moments where they're not and that inner critic comes in. And that's when they're more likely, let's say, to then, you know, binge or press the effort button. Uh, and uh, and even if, so you've got that control, control, control. And when they don't, what happens then? They overeat and then beat themselves up. So it might be a subjective binge. So their overeating might be, I know, an extra, a biscuit they didn't mean to have. But there's still a lot of huge shame that, that comes around. And then they're back to the control. When you tend to work with binge eating, you can see on some level psychology it's very similar condition that I mean look at all the basics of it the difference tends to be that it tends to be you know the over controller tends to be smaller even though it's there so they might not eat all day uh, and control 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 all day and then the binging or the overeating part tends to be much bigger so there tends to be that kind of probably more a stronger relationship with the shame critical part it tends to be more familiar because uh, there's been more of a time with that as the predominant force in their mind and less of that controller, but they're both being within there um so i guess again in terms of treatment you're doing something 
quite similar. I guess the other different part is in working with the actual, how they feel about their body, which I think was what I guess you were getting at as well. And there's obviously difference working with someone who's underweight, uh, someone whose weight is within the, let's say, norms, and then working with someone in a bigger body. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that does bring different dimensions to uh, how you would approach those elements. Uh, the, the individuals that tend to be healthy weights and uh, around that healthy normalized weight range and the underweights tend to usually have quite large body image disturbance they tend to see their bodies much bigger than they actually are so you end up have to get you know you have to do work to help them see what everyone else sees uh, and obviously then with the large person in the larger body there tends to be uh, helping them support them a lot with the uh, the, the very real uh, stigma that they might experience so they might be experiencing both their inner critic but they might also be experiencing a lot of external day in, day out criticism around their appearance. I mean, it does happen for some of the underweight people too, but uh, that tends to be. So you would approach that uh, obviously in a slightly different way, but it's not that much different because uh, you're helping someone uh, yeah, learn to manage that foremost. Yeah, it's really interesting how... You know, I think if you initially kind of said what binge eating disorder or what anorexia was, they they sound like, you know, pretty much opposites. But then actually, maybe the the drivers or, and the way you might treat it is actually quite similar. I, I think that's really interesting how you've like laid it out in terms of the the kind of aspects that are causing it are actually quite similar. It's just sort of a different ratio. It's, it's quite interesting. It can, it can be, I mean, as when you're working, it can feel like that a lot of the time. I mean, people might argue it's, uh, you know, there may be more differences than that. And there are, you know, subtle differences in presentations with them. And, but, and I think, you know, uh, that might lead to that. But fundamentally, it's, uh, yeah, there are, there are quite a lot of, you know, there are you know, a lot of similarities when working with these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing with individuals that have been eating or in a larger body, uh, is what you might find is that actually for a lot of people they present and say all we want to do is lose the weight uh, and when you're working with individuals the bit that they don't really want to hear is that actually the treatment specifically involves them not losing weight <laughs> and uh, and what you're and for it to be effective so actually you're trying to help them stabilize stop the binging uh, and then uh, and the other element is to help them which might which sounds counterintuitive to the individual is if you want to help them develop better body image the first thing you need to do is uh, you know they think if I lose all the weight they'll be happy the reality is is that isn't the case they actually need to learn to develop uh, that kind of happiness with their body first and then be able to and if they then decide they want to lose the weight so be it you know it's up to them but actually what you find with a lot of individuals with uh, when you support them with binge eating is that they don't actually once you finish it they don't want to lose the weight um now that's not the same for everybody but there's uh, there are also some psychological elements there as well as i mentioned earlier there's you know a large percentage of people with binge eating disorder have suffered uh child sexual abuse or sexual abuse and actually their larger body you could argue and once it is it can be a, def- uh, a way of protecting themselves so there can be elements around that as well as the process of the binging being a, a kind of a, a self-soothing strategy that replaces the lack of that sense of connection and support and belonging so there are, i mean there are differences but again you, you have the same presentation when somebody might develop anorexia uh, and they just uh, and that's an uncommon work with individuals who want to be particularly uh, asexual in their presentation, again, to minimize unwanted sexual attention. So, I mean, it does cross over both, uh, both, of, uh, both groups. What you've been wanting to ask. Yeah, definitely. And, and that actually really nicely leads me on to one of the questions that we had from the listeners, um, which was talking about how... Um, you know, if you were to work with somebody that had had sexual trauma, how can they recover from their eating disorder if they've kind of rejected their body or they've got a lack of compassion? And I know that's a, a big, massive question. Um, but you know, I guess, do you have any thoughts about that for if anyone's listening? OK, I guess it touched on some of the stuff we talked about in the past, which mm-hmm. is about when... When you, I mentioned, when we deal with the trauma world, one of the things you're trying to do is help somebody develop uh, a compassionate, wise, courageous other. Now, the important, the bit that you know, 
the bit of compassion that's so important, which I touched on, is the ability to empathize. And what that means is to have the courage to sit with the feelings. Mm. Now, that's the bit that, if we think about the common feature across all of what we discussed in the work is that when people deal with difficult feelings, their standard response might be to try and shut that, those feelings down and avoid them. And the more we avoid feelings, uh, the less we are able to deal with them. So part of what we try and do is build up someone's capacity to sit and tolerate distress and those emotions. Once you've built that capacity up and they can then revisit some of these traumas, but from a wise, compassionate, courageous, and be, really be able to empathize and process some of the feelings associated with it. They then have to go through and process different feelings. And it's different for different people. So first off, it might be processing sadness about how they've, you know, what's the, been the ramifications of those traumas? What's their life look like because of, and to grieve some of that. And so that will then move into anger. They'll start to, initially one way that they don't have to feel is just, it's easy to be angry at yourself and blame yourself. But when they stand back and realize that, let's say that, uh, so, and that's one of the most common thing I deal with, with, with sexual trauma. One way to just block it out is, you know, you know, I was drunk. So it, you know, uh, it was my fault. Uh, you know, maybe I didn't say no, I don't know within that context. And it's, and it's helping people to step back and bring that wise appraisal and go, wait a minute. No, that's, that's not okay. Uh, be able to grieve that and then start generating and processing that anger. And once you can get them to process that, the, the different emotions, the sadness, the anger, and work through that, then they begin to not just process that trauma, but begin to process the trauma of how it's impacted their lives, how they feel about their bodies, uh, and then what they want their, their relationship with their body to be like moving forward. And that's when you're then looking at, right, what are the next steps? And that's where, uh, again, with some of the uh, that side of things, something I didn't it's kind of developed more and more in the work over the years that but wasn't there I guess initially and that's probably about my experience and this side of thing is that actually when you deal with a lot of individuals with body image and eating disorders a lot of the work then tends to look at uh, their issues with intimacy and actually that how that's impacted so that once you've done that work uh, then actually what they want to do is work on that side of things how can they uh, you know how can they have relationships or in the relationships they have that where there's dysfunction how do they overcome that dysfunction so that they can um yeah reduce some of the impact that their trauma has had on them moving forward so that tends to well hopefully i'll explain that reasonably reasonably well but that's how you can work through that as a process so that people can end up not just thinking thing but then actually changing how they are going forward and, uh, and really having that second chance you know realizing that they you know we've learned to be this way so we can also learn to be another way which mm. One way that reminds me, one way to kind of talking about a question that comes up time and time again that you hear people talk about, uh, you know, is it true you can recover or you can't recover from an eating disorder, which is something here and time and time again. One, what, how I've learned to kind of explain it is that um, learning to develop your, kind of your experiences or an eating disorder is like learning to speak English if you're English. That's how you've learned to be. And when people say, why don't you just switch out of it? Well, unless you've learned to speak a different language, you can't. It's mm -hmm. just that's it so really what therapy is like and probably takes about the same work is is about developing an alternative way of being and an alternative language so that you can choose because you can't take away someone's eating disorder it, neurologically you can't what you can do is develop something better and that's what you're trying to do is what you're doing within the assessment is that you're trying to look at what they get from it and recovery is when you help them develop something that's better than it so that's an easy choice if you can't develop something better, they're never going to choose to do anything different. So you help them develop that alternative that's better. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, I guess, it's my conception of recovery is that they have a choice. And that choice is they can choose their eating disorder if they want, or they can choose something that they've learned that's uh, an alternative, it's a better choice. And uh, if you can give them that, then I think that's as best as we've got in terms of uh, recovery. I absolutely love that. I've never kind of thought about it in that way of, I think kind of when you can put it so clearly as like a language, like, you know, you've, you've learned that language, you could learn another language if you wanted to, and you can alternate, you know, what have you. It's, it's such a nice, a nice analogy to use. And I think, you know, we spoke um, last week actually on the podcast about full recovery and um, Carolina, who was on the podcast with me, she was like, you know, I'm here fully recovered and it is possible. And I think, you know, we have 
almost developed this idea that full recovery isn't possible and this is something that you're going to have to kind of navigate and manage forever but I think like we were saying before I don't think it's that you can't reach full recovery I think that is completely possible it's just some of the characteristics are going to stay with you because they're actually a benefit to you um so I guess reframing that is yeah no you put that really nicely so thank you um then the other question um that we had from a listener which I think we've we've kind of maybe touched on a bit um in terms of you know the therapy of weight through weight gain um but somebody just asked for some tips of kind of navigating the the changing body through recovery and kind of keeping pushing even though it's really uncomfortable okay that's a big one i'm actually working on something at the i was hoping to have it out last year because we were getting so much so many referrals and uh we couldn't we couldn't we were struggling to deal with it and knowing that all services were overwhelmed i was trying to develop something that was much more cost effective so I'm, hopefully this spring i'll be able to get it out on the website uh, which is um, an audiovisual treatment package uh, to help with body image now um and it, it uses a lot of some of the stuff we're talking we talked a bit about today uh why I mentioned that is that um, what I was trying to figure out when developing it is you've got a lot of the processes you're putting in place to help people with body image. And a lot of them are, are thinking about how I've learned to be with my body, about competing and comparing. When I go around, how much is my mind looking at others competing and comparing? And uh, is it doing it negatively or positively? E.g., do I look at some people and go, yeah, uh, uh, I wish I looked like that and my brain's doing that. And other people go trying to look for people to criticize to make themselves feel better and this is done on a subconscious level so some of the work you're trying to help people do is notice their minds doing that and then thinking about their values and choose how they want to be going forward so a lot of that work can help when people are have a changing body there's a piece of work at the end that needs to be done which you can't do while they're having a changing body which is to learn uh which is to learn it's trying to look in it's is to accept the body and looking at body image disturbance because the problem with body image disturbance doing it when people are gaining weight is that you can help them but then when they gain let's say another kilo then they'll they'll discard all of that work because they've seen themselves because now they're bigger again so there's a piece of work that you've got to do when someone is at that kind of healthy weight uh, so uh, which is a kind of is separate but i'm not gonna that's not gonna be part of this stream this stream is going to cover everything else other than that because that bit really needs to be done with a clinician that last piece when people are healthy weight because it can be emotionally quite challenging um so yeah uh, if i was to is there a uh, i can't really it, it, it is quite a, it's such a big thing i can't really give any <laughs> particular nuggets that i haven't probably given today uh, about helter uh, i feel like that on its own would have been a podcast episode Okay. Uh, one thing I also wanted to mention, um, hopefully you don't mind a plug, uh, is What's something that? that I think is very good. Um, there's a petition run by uh, a, well, uh, at, called Change Social Media Laws, which is from a uh, which is linked to hashtag Honesty About Editing, which is looking at trying to change the laws in relation to social media and being able to change appearance and being uh, and. Uh, making people accountable or at least indicate that images have been changed now, linking to a lot of this stuff it you know it's only it plays it only plays a small role but it's a really important role because when people are competing and comparing that's hard enough when they're competing and comparing against images that <laughs> aren't even real <laughs> that just sets the bar even more impossible so uh, if we can you know help that that would you know that would i think that would make a, a really important change to our culture and society with some of the factors that really are driving uh some of the some of the issues around appearance uh, particularly in those uh using social media a lot yeah absolutely and um if you are interested for those people listening we did have Suzanne on the podcast a few months ago um to talk about her campaign and I personally I think it's so important because I remember being with a friend um and she was talking about like editing pictures and I was like who edits their pictures why would you edit a picture and she was like everyone edits 
pictures, Hannah. And I was like, no, people would never. Why would they do that? Because I've never edited one. And I and then she was like, literally, about every most image you look at. I was just like, well, I need to, I need to reconsider then what like not comparing myself because you know, like you've just said, you're comparing yourself to something that's not even real. So you're really gonna set yourself up there. Um, but yeah, brilliant campaign. Yeah, I mean. Uh, we're going to do a whole podcast and talking about just cultural trends on social media use at the moment and the impact it's having, especially in the uh, younger adults and adolescents is mind boggling. Uh, but yeah, uh, so th- this would go go some way to help some of that. So it'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. It's been a fantastic um, conversation with you. I have learned so much. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. No, I have as well. Uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.